beautiful just to let your praises go and rejoice in what God is doing today. And before we're seated, I want to share in a moment of prayer with Joe Gorman. Would you come for a moment? And because I know heart in all of our hearts, um, we want to just together surround Joe in this time of uh, change that's brought a new phase of care for Sylvia um, at home right now. And um, let's just uh, join. And I'd like to ask some brothers to come. Uh, men, come that uh, just uh, come as you would choose. You're welcome to come if you decline. We just want to stand for a moment for prayer to thank the Lord for Joe and Sylvia and um, lift her before the throne of grace. Thank you for joining with us by faith together. Oh, Father, we thank you today as we gather here um, in so many ways more than we could put into words adequately. Lord, the, the guidance and advice and love and service and care and compassion and generosity and tireless service for the edifying of the body of Christ that Sylvia and Joe give as a couple uh, is a treasure. It's a treasure in our lives. And Lord, Together as we walk alongside Joe in this time of, of Sylvia's care, uh, we just pray, again, beyond what any human resource could do, we ask the Holy Spirit to just envelop Sylvia today, Lord, with great strength, powerfully bless her with an immediate sense of your presence. We pray for wellness upon her and for the very best of care at every phase. Lord, we thank you for the gifts in Sylvia's life. We thank you for the, the wonderful gift of her love for you and the way that she sought in so many ways to honor you that people never even realized or saw but was so, so magnetic and so um, consequential in this congregational life as well as in the communities that she served in her realtor career and so many other aspects of her life. So, Lord, we thank you for blessing Sylvia now with peace and comfort and strength. We ask you just to envelop Joe, Lord, with great confidence and assurance and peace as, his, as her primary caregiver in the beautiful way that he set that example. Lord, we, we stand with, with honor and awe at the gift of this couple and who they are and what they do. And now we pray that you'd provide Joe resources that strengthen him, bless him, encourage him. I pray pour into him, Lord, a deep comfort and strength for these days and just bless him with a, a, an immediate awareness of your presence guiding him through these times in every detail, every decision. Refresh his soul and refresh and refresh him with that wonderful reality that uh, the Holy Spirit has a quickening grace within him that is far greater than natural ability. And we give you thanks and praise, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yes, you're welcome.
Amen. Well, thank you for sharing each aspect of this. And together, um, also, just before the kids go out for their class, would you reach out and just greet about three people this morning with a, another uh, grace and peace from our hearts to you, each of you joining us in Facebook Live. Uh, we get to wipe a few tears here and, and just rejoice also in God's timing and grace in your life, wherever you are, whatever's happening with you, we want to stand with you as well. So we take a brief break to greet and fellowship. We love you all. <laughs> hey, Josiah. Hey, man. You good, buddy? Uh, all right, man. Good to see you. Appreciate you. Glad it's worked out. You got it. You're driving back Saturday evening. Oh, you you okay with it? All right, good. All right, good. <laughs> All right. Okay, good, good. All right. Okay, and now uh, as we kind of regather our. Our boys and girls will be going in a couple of minutes, and welcome everybody. Hey Dick, hey, bless you. While we kind of regather, I'm going to ask you to lift the Bible up from the back of the pews here, because we're going to do a brief reading together, and I think we're going to do this before the kids go out, so just kids, stay where you are. You don't, have to go, you don't have to go back to your pews. Just stand where you are for a moment. Stand by the doors, and we'll do this together. I want to spontaneously, I'd just like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, just three verses here briefly, a, a brief reading. And Diane, thank you for teaching today. Thank you, everybody, for teaching, each of you. It's such a blessing. Isn't it a joy just to hear these kids, uh, beautiful voices, and to share uh, for them to be with us. A uh, bit of family worship here for a few minutes. So, so Philippians chapter 1, I'd like to ask you to read today verses 8 through 11. To just, uh, just to highlight the theme of the love that goes far deeper than any human love. And may I ask you to read this thinking about this church, that one prayer that would be very timely and relevant for all of us is to pray what Paul prays in verses 9 through 11, that our love would grow more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So I'm going to ask you to read aloud with me. You can stand or be seated, whatever you're comfortable doing. Let's read verses 8 through 11 of Philippians chapter 1. Let's read together. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense, Till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Could I hear a hallelujah? All right, let's make some noise for the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. And thank you. Classes now, Pathfinders and Explorers can go. And thank you so much. And we're going to, teachers, we're going to track that time to about 40 minutes, okay? So. 
you're, you're, we're on track, I pray. If the pastor does what he's supposed to do, it works. <laughs> now, <laughs> this, this brief reading there in Philippians 1 is a good intro to where we're going to look at in chapter 4. You can open your Bible to chapter 4 of Philippians. This is our primary section today. Some real surprises. Uh, last Sunday, surprises in the text, I mean, that are, are, are very very intriguing to me at this particular juncture in our life and the life of our church. Um, last week, we talked about lighthearted living, and really the under the theme today is to carry that lightheartedness that we saw in the real rejoicing of the apostles. We looked last week at an example of Peter and John. They're getting beaten. They're getting physically beaten for stepping out into the city of Jerusalem to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. The Sanhedrin is in a quandary because they, they know they can't really take their um, restraining of these apostles too far because the joy, the, 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 the sheer wonder and, and awe and uh, jubilation in the crowds is just growing and growing in the city of Jerusalem. And yet uh, they are hard-pressed to find some way to try to clamp down on this growing movement of the witnesses to the risen Lord. And so that quandary takes place. We looked at that last week. And what we saw as we looked at that was that they came out of that time of being physically then flogged and then commanded, do not preach in that name anymore. And we saw last week that they came out rejoicing even more and proclaiming the good news, not, in a, not so much in a defiant way, but in a jubilant, overcoming way. They were free to be who God called them to be. And the remarkable thing about it is they show us a vivid example that life can be lighthearted even when there is harsh, difficult, oftentimes overwhelmingly unpleasant pressures around us. The child of God taps into what we saw in this reading in Philippians 1. It is because of Jesus Christ. It is because of the very nature and character of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we turn to chapter 4 today, we find ourselves, I think, in an example of what I'd like to think of today as light-hearted relationships. We stand on the threshold of a discovery about happiness that might be surprising to others, as some aspects of this were surprising to me as I began to revisit a very familiar chapter. Probably everyone here, uh, no one would not hear, would, would not immediately recognize the fourth verse of this chapter, right? Let's just say it is such a wonderful declaration. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice let's say it again Philippians 4 4 let's just say it together rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice well first of all this chapter resonates so vividly and powerfully with us because for one thing we've learned that we've heard that many of us have sung that little praise chorus since we were many many uh, years ago so even some of us since we were kids and so it's, it resonates because we realize there is this quality of rejoicing that 
was exemplified, obviously, by Peter and John last week in that example, but a kind of rejoicing that doesn't fit the categories of many human ways of looking at happiness. For that reason, there's often kind of, a, of, a, of an effort to explain, and it's understandable, there's an effort to explain that joy is not happiness, and that's true, and I've said that many times, that joy in the Lord is greater than happiness, because usually when we think about happiness, we think about human happenings, we think about human circumstances, we think about things that are favorable to us in our perception, in our experience, in our uh, surroundings, in our circumstances, in our financial well-being, in our friendships, and on this weekend before Valentine's Day, of course, the whole realm of the romantic relationships of life would be something that would obviously very much on the dashboard of life for many people. But I'd like for us to explore for a minute something that I find happily surprising. It's a serendipity of the text, and uh, it's, it's the first of three that I'd like to think about. And that first is that there is a way, there is a way that the Bible speaks very positively about real happiness that sometimes we do not fully credit. And this chapter shows us why that is. In fact, I'd like you to read in your own Bible. Now, I'm switching now in uh, my text over to the ESV, uh, but feel free to read your uh, pew Bible or whatever translation you have. But I'd like you to read with me and just track with me. Let's take the whole section here, verses 1 to 11, and get the sense of the section, and then we'll talk about the surprising insights it gives us into real happiness and into the role that relationships in the body of Christ have in happiness, and then the goal of heart and mind receiving and embracing God's path to this high, holy happiness. So what we want to see, for one thing, is that in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is his person. It is the fact that he is alive. It is exactly what Peter and John were proclaiming in the streets of Jerusalem. Is the reason the Apostle Paul, writing under house arrest, in imprisonment, writing this letter as one of four what we call prison epistles, and Paul, though imprisoned and constrained in his mobility at this point, is writing what scholars have called his most jubilant letter. One, one, uh, one observer said, this is Paul's happiest letter, and the happiness is infectious, and certainly it is. Let's read verses 1 to 11 of uh, Philippians 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Pause for a moment and just notice again, as it was in chapter 1, that the things we need the most, the areas where we might most cry out for an answer, the places where a heartache might strike us the deepest, the Word of God points us to the person of Jesus, the living, risen Lord, telling us, as Paul himself experienced, that it is because you are in Christ Jesus. It is because these prayers and petitions that you might feel are so feeble and so maybe even inadequately worded. How many of you stop in a prayer sometimes and think, I'm not wording this right? Don't you do that sometimes? You just think, I'm not saying it right. And yet, what we're seeing is that in all of our inadequacies, we come to him and this chapter literally dances with the delight of the warm welcome of Almighty God to the child of God who has said in Christ Jesus, I receive from you what I cannot do or be or expect in myself. Peace of God, verse 7, that peace that surpasses all human understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Greek word for that noun guard or that verb guard is, is the word that means a sentinel. And if we think of it this way, Christ the Lord puts a sentinel of peace around that besieged heart that feels so beleaguered and hurt. And he promises that. He promises a peace that is like a sentinel around you so that as you're trusting in God, even when you can't see the answer, there is, an, there is a strong, solid peace that anchors you. Then verse 8 through 11, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, admirable, some translations say, things that you can admire, think about them, think about them. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Could you say those four words aloud with me? Think about these things. Now, among other things we find from this chapter, the Apostle Paul is giving us a clue that the heart can be redirected, that in God's grace, he has equipped us to step out of our limited frame of reference, to step into that sentinel of his peace, and in that sentinel of peace, where our heart and mind is guarded, he says, we can choose where to direct our thoughts. That's really an awesome, uh, a, a very awesome takeaway initially to grasp why the imperatives that come through this joyous brief epistle are all wrapped up in the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ is alive, that our calling as followers of Jesus is, is to realize that eternity gives us foretastes, pre-deposits of our eternal inheritance that we can believe in, we can walk in, we can track this. 
If I were to put it in terms of a, of a question about verse 8, can you change your thinking? Philippians 4, many people would say, I just can't do it. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I just can't do it. But Philippians 4, 8 would, would defy that. Philippians 4, 8 would tell you, yes, you can change your thinking. Now, why can I say that? Why can we be so sure? Back to that first verse, and then I want to direct you a bit to the third chapter, the last two verses of the third chapter also that impact this. But on that first verse, if you just go back to that, you see the apostle begins, or this chapter begins, chapter divisions, not in the original manuscript, of course, but the chapter four begins with this uh, sort of wrapping up statement after what he's just dealt with in the, in the previous verses about our citizenship being in heaven. And uh, let's look at the imperatives first, and then I'm going to go back to that 20th verse of chapter 3 and think about that for a minute. Because in the opening words of chapter 4 of Philippians, we have, we have four very compelling insights into how the Apostle Paul saw the people that he was writing to. We have the term friend. We have the term beloved. We have the term joy, and we have the term crown. And in all four of those, in that first brief verse, the Apostle Paul is relating the fact that the brothers and sisters in the family of God in that Philippian community of churches were all connected in a way that God provides a joy in life a lightheartedness in life, a crowning truth of his presence that changes the dynamic of relationship. And the reason he can say this, he says, I'm longing for you. I'm, I have a deep affection for you. I'm really struck by the fact that this chapter, in a way that surprised me as I began to explore this, is a wonderful template for enriching relationships in this church family and in your family and in your workplace simply because it takes into even Paul's imprisonment, even a place where Paul certainly would never have chosen to be, and many of us are here today in this worship center, possibly in circumstances that you never chose to be, your job or your living situation or some situation in your life is not at all what you thought it was going to be 20 years ago. That would be an interesting poll <laughs> to ask, wouldn't it? And yet God says, like Paul is expressing in this, in this jubilant epistle, the kind of joy, this effervescent reality that doesn't change the circumstances immediately, but it creates within us a dynamic that not only benefits our lives, but deepens the relationships with others. And so that first verse wraps up in four phrases. My joy and my crown, my friends, my beloved. He's talking about a connection point that is as ever-present and up to the minute as it could possibly be for us. But now let's look back why in verse 20 of chapter 3. Just quickly, look at that 20th and 21st verse of chapter 3. Here is where he says, interestingly, that the city of Philippi was, was, a, was, was a significant military center for the Roman Empire. 
after it was brought into the empire under Augustus Caesar. And this um, characteristic, there are characteristic uh, phrases about government and the political system and the polis, the P-O-L-I-S, referring to the people as a civic body in the literature that Luke writes. And uh, it's kind of striking that citizenship in Rome, being Roman citizens, was particularly of interest and a point of pride for the uh, inhabitants of Philippi. And Paul picks up that word citizenship in verse 20 of chapter 3 and says, Our citizenship is in heaven, (laughs) from which we eagerly await the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall transform these glorious, these bodies to be like unto his glorious body. So the Apostle Paul immediately makes a connection in a kind of a dual citizenship. You and I, when you came to Christ, when you asked the Lord Jesus Christ to come into your heart, when you said, I want you to, Lord, be Lord of my life, I I yield my life to you, I want my life to be redirected by the guidance of Almighty God, and I receive your forgiveness for my sins, I believe you were raised from the dead, come into my life, take me and lead me. You immediately were given a dual citizenship. Eternally, your citizenship is in heaven. And the proof that that eternal citizenship is going to triumph over the trouble, the evil, the outright um, opposition of of the enemy of our souls against us, proof is in the resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle Paul connects it directly. We're eagerly awaiting the Savior who will transform these bodies to be like unto his glorious body. In other words, when he gets to that first verse of chapter 4 and he appeals to the believers to say you're my joy you're my crown how can he say that in such unfavorable circumstances it's because relationships have been changed affected powerfully and dramatically the paraphrase of scripture that uh, has been very popular it's a one of many good paraphrases to read and study and that is the uh, Eugene Peterson paraphrase called the message in that In that paraphrase, uh, Peterson renders these uh, imperatives in verse 1 like this. Be glad in God. Don't waver. Stay on track. Steady in God. In other words, Paul, in this passage of Scripture, gives us a window into a surprisingly light-hearted view of life And it extends to the relationships in his life. Now, this kind of brings us back to this kind of uh, paradox I mentioned as I started today, that that, uh, surely holiness is far more important than happiness. And I've preached this before. I've said this before. I believe this. When you're dealing with God in your personal relationship with the Lord and your growth with God, most of us are geared toward wanting to be happy. God's goal is for us to be holy. So for many of us, it's goal number one on the dashboard of my life is getting more happy. Goal number one on God's dashboard is you being conformed to the image of his son. Amen? And so we can, let's put these together and think about it uh, just very quickly. Uh, if you want it in your notes, Romans 8.29 tells us we have, been, we have been called to this wonderful purpose. All things work together for good to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son. That Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. So 
Romans 8, 29 is telling us that God is a goal for your life, and it's conformity to Jesus. It's nothing less than you, in your own unique personality, God giving you the joy of being conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, add to that, just add to that, Hebrews 12, 14, a great verse, a simple verse. It reminds us again, Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, when we think of those verses, we see that God's goal is not some ethereal or uh, theoretical thing. It is a reality of personhood. God is leading us by the Holy Spirit to see our lives by his grace increasingly reflect the real person of Jesus. Even to say that is an astounding thing, isn't it? Stop and think about how much of our lives we are aware of our own inadequacies and then think about the perfection of the Lord Jesus and then realize that God is actually doing a work to conform you to the image of Jesus. You say, boy, that's a stretch, Pastor. Are you sure? Are you sure about that? Oh, am I sure? And I want you to add, if you're kind of jotting some of that down, I want you to add 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 to that, where the Bible says that we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are being changed from glory to glory into that same image. It's the reason in Ephesians 4, 22, we're told to put off the old man and its uh, corrupted instincts. And in Ephesians 4, 24, told to put on the new man, which is created after the image of Christ in righteousness and true holiness. Put off, put on. Would you say that with me? Put off, put on. But I always think of those verses like the top and bottom bread on a hamburger. The top of the hamburger is put off. Say put off. The bottom of the hamburger is put on. Say put on. Now what's the meat? Ephesians 4.23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.8 goes to the same place we just saw it. Think on these things. How can I do that if I'm just some weak, wandering, poor, lost sinner, barely saved by grace, hoping to finally make it to heaven one day? No, he's describing here a, a, a view of life. A view of a walk with God that grows more robust, more compelling, more inviting, and more contagious in the best possible way. Because it is, a, it is anchored in Christ doing something that can't be done by ourselves. And it ties in directly to 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 3, where we... Learn about loving life. Now, again, I'm, for the sake of time, I'm not going to have you turn there, but it's on the screen. If you want to think, ask yourself the question, does God want you to cherish your life? Now, now I'm, this is not a trick question, but think about it. We know there's two sides of a biblical truth here, isn't there? Let's think about it together, okay? One side is, 
Luke 9, 23 tells us, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever loves his life, what? Whoever loves his life will what? Lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall find it. The term life there is the same word for soul, the mind, will, and emotions. And Christ is basically saying, if you're going to follow me, first there's got to be a deep, underlying understanding that what I'm offering you is better than your life. That, that your mind, your will, your emotions are going to trap you. They're going to mislead you. When you see the Lordship of Christ, the risen King, and you say, Lord, I lay down my life, then you are ready to receive the life that is life. You're ready for what David saw prophetically in Psalm 63, 4, when he said, Thy loving kindness is better than life. To know you takes me out of the limited sphere of how I see life. and takes me to a place where I can say, Oh, Lord, I'll gladly lay down my life to receive what you know and what you show in Scripture is a true, compelling call. Oh, yeah. Lose your life. However, as I said, think with me, there's another side to the coin, isn't there? Look at 1 Peter 3, 8 and think about it. Whoever would love life, whoever would love life and see good days, let him turn away from evil and turn and for his lips to not speak deceptively, but let him put his trust in the Lord. So here's, it goes on into relationships. Bless those who curse you. Respond to those who are adversarial with a prayer that they might discover the goodness of God themselves. It's not, it's not a contradiction, in other words, to say, lose your life to follow Christ, but love the life that God has designed for us to enter into. I think loving life in that sense is a beautiful balance in this subject of happiness. Now go back to your text in verse uh, 2 and 3, and let's think about how in this prison epistle, the Apostle Paul then took this reality, this effervescent life, this percolating reality of being in Christ and having a newness of life in us. And in this brief epistle of four chapters, his letter from the Roman jail is saturated with relationships, principles of enriching relationships. In fact, it's striking that he refers in the text to four, really actually count them, five different individuals that are unfamiliar to us. <laughs> we kind of think of reading the Old Testament running into names we don't know, <laughs> you know, when you're reading through numbers, right? But here's, here are five in all, counting the yoke fellow that he refers to obliquely in verse 3, that we don't know exactly who they were. But they're singled out in the Bible to show us a bigger pr principle. And that is, your relationships can be mightily enriched by living in this joyous, lighthearted awareness that Jesus is Lord. I've laid my life at his feet. He's Lord of my heart and my life. Sure, I encounter some trouble along the way. And sure, there are some dark and difficult days. And we don't diminish or minimize that. 
at all in the struggles of life as we pray for one another. But there is this paradoxical lightheartedness that comes through the pen of the Apostle Paul that um, reminds me of a statement by uh, the, the composer John uh, Joseph Haydn who was quoted once by saying, when I'm so in my mode of worship as I'm writing and composing, when I think of God, it is almost as if the notes dance off of my quill. Paul, to me, was like that in this epistle. It's like the, the, the letters are dancing off of his quill. And these five people kind of give us a quick composite of how relationships can be enriched. Let's think about them quickly, even though all these names are really unfamiliar to most of us. Epaphroditus in chapter 2 is shown to be this courier, probably, most likely, was the actual person that carried the epistle that Paul was writing and then made the journey back to Philippi from Rome. And Epaphroditus, though, was far more than just a courier, not just somebody carrying out a task. He was a dear and deeply beloved friend of the Apostle Paul. In fact, his assistance to Paul is so notable and so needed and uh, so distinctive that in the second chapter of this epistle, Paul talks about a point where Epaphroditus got very sick, and then he got sicker. And Paul's prayers for him were not visibly to any avail, and, and he got to the point where he was feared that he might lose his life. And Paul, the Bible tells us in that chapter, was so wonderfully relieved when Epaphroditus began to improve and began to regain his health. And Paul said, God had mercy on me by sparing my beloved Epaphroditus. When we pray for our loved ones that are facing these very difficult sicknesses and illnesses, we can enter into that very same, that deep current that Paul speaks of in verse 1 of chapter 4. I, I long for you, he says. We long for our loved ones. We long for those who are going through a deep waters, physical illness or other tests. And Epaphroditus there is a model for us that, that one of the ways that in, in relationships are enriched by this lightheartedness is an awareness. God has something better for us. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we await the fulfillment. And in the meantime, we bring our petitions. We bring our prayers. When we are in a place of testing, we persevere not in our power, but in a confidence that is born of realizing the risen Lord towers over the eons of time and gives each of us a place to stand. And then the co-laboring women, this one is an interesting paradox. Look at that second and third verse. Here we have a situation that where the jokes almost write themselves. <laughs> you come to this text in your Bible, you're reading right along, Paul's experience as an apostle, and he points out two women who are having some kind of undefined here in the text, but some kind of difference. Let's not call it an all-out conflict. We don't know. It might not have been. It might have just been a divergent viewpoint on some point of the policy of the church or some doctrinal issue or some cultural situation. We don't know what it was. We can't speak from silence. But what we do know <laughs> and what we can all, I think, get a little chuckle out of is how would you like it if you got this letter from the Apostle Paul, you know, and your names, <laughs> you know, it's like you too. Hey, you, 
you know, which, you know, no pastor should ever do that, right? So, of course, so he says, Euodia and Syntyche, <laughs> I am appealing to you. <laughs> uh, resolve this thing. <laughs> resolve whatever it is. <laughs> I want you to get together in the Lord. Well, the reason we could and should laugh at it a little bit is that, is that it shows us the reality, the, the sparkling uh, personalities of real churches, real people, it's a grace from God that we have Philippians 4.2 in my heart because it's a reminder whoever Yodia and Syntyche were, and oh my, I've read some speculation, as, as will always be the case, isn't it? But the truth is the text, we can't go beyond the text. We don't know who they were. We can surmise some things. But, but one thing we do know is that they were valuable to the Apostle Paul. And the third verse tells us something that, again, sort of presents a little bit of a paradox, at least it would in some people's mind. And that is, the Apostle Paul credits these women with being indispensable to the cause of the gospel. And that tells us something else about this undefined conflict. It tells us that even people, let me put it this way. Is it okay? Are you still breathing? Even people who are not acting at their best in their church are still mightily valuable to God, okay? Why am I saying that? Because it underscores the need for a cong healthy congregation that give people breathing space, give people room to change. Don't be white on rice, ready to crack down on every infraction. But trust, as the truth of God's word goes forth, that the Holy Spirit will work with us, that he will grace us. Okay, and so we think of it like this. Verse 3 tells us that they were, they were valuable to him in the gospel. They were advancing the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Euodia and Syntyche. And they were side by side with the apostle, the middle of verse 3. And they were together with another of the believers by the name of Clement, who we can just surmise was a seasoned leader. And then another kind of surprise in the text. Verse 3, the pronouns change from plural to singular in the middle of verse 3 where the Apostle Paul says, I ask you also, true companion, singular, help these women. Again, lots of speculation about who this may be. It seems that in the epistle of the Philippians, Paul, when he gets to chapter 4, and just before he breaks out in that rejoicing that we echoed earlier, he, he hones in on first two beloved godly women who he now wants to urge to take another step forward in their spiritual life and resolve a difference because of how valuable they are in the gospel. Then he refers to Clement, another leader, and refers to others who serve, and he aims it at one person that the Greek term translates yoke fellow. The Greek word means one joined together in a cause. Uh, 
from the best of my speculation and reading, I think it's very possible that he's addressing Luke in this. Luke is there at this time. Could have been that he's saying, hey, Luke, uh, walk with me and help me honor these people. Help me honor them. Others believe it could have been Epaphroditus. We don't really know. But that, that makes this yoke fellow uh, is one another in this circle of enriched relationships. Now I want to conclude today by thinking about how valuable it is that Paul models for us this way that in our church life and in all of our spiritual adventures that we are connected to one another in ways that, that of course we want to cultivate in the life of the church more, but we can cultivate it best if we know in our hearts every single individual matters in the life of this church. Every single person, their gifts, their perspective, their insight. And God gives us that imagery here of the Apostle Paul at one of his most stressed times in life being buoyed and strengthened by the deep current of love that he had for these relationships. And right dropped into the middle of it is a reminder of these two ladies that they have an opportunity to take this enriching relationship and make it stronger. That could be true for a married couple today. That could be true for friendship. That could be true for a conflict at work. That could be true for any area where you find yourself at odds with somebody that you'd like to see a better relationship the grace of God was at work there. I think of it almost like the, uh, almost like the tear ducts in the eye that when the eyes get too dry and the tear ducts begin to clean the eyes out. God's grace is like the tear ducts of the Holy Spirit. It's like, the, it's like that, that, uh, that solution that helps us to, to, to see more clearly. And I, I love an example that uh, came from the uh, conductor of the Lo Los Angeles Philharmonic. I don't know if he... Uh, uh, I don't know if um, he is a fan of the Rams or not, so I can't help you on the Super Bowl today. But I just want to close by this, uh, this um, one thought about his example that I think parallels what Paul was doing in Philippians 4. He's being asked, how is it that you get such great results from the, from the Philharmonic, from your orchestra? And what is, the, what is it that, that, that helps to facilitate a growing sense of, of, of esprit de corps in the symphony? And I love his answer. Carlo Maria Guilini said, My intention always has been to arrive at human contact without enforcing my authority. A musician, after all, is not a military officer. The great mystery of music making requires real friendship among those who work together. Every member of the orchestra knows I am with him and her in my heart. No doubt it could have been said of the Apostle Paul writing the Philippian letter from that Roman house arrest. It could be said. <laughs> That the apostle was appealing to Yodi and Syntyche, not with the heavy hand of apostolic authority that he could have used, but no, with a gentle appeal and accenting in the text a connectedness, a human contact in which he could say, 
like the conductor, <laughs> the making of music, but let's say the growth of discipleship. A disciple growing, a disciple making, a disciple nurturing church can advance by real friendship among those who work together. Two are better than one, for they have a reward for their labor, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. As we pray today, I want to pray in a very specific way, if you would let me, for you. And it's very... I think very timely, if you would lift a hand just to say in, in your own way something you know, I, I want to tap into this grace of, a, of being lighthearted and free to enjoy my relationships. And, 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 and that means even if something isn't lighthearted, <laughs> even if something's kind of heavy-hearted right now, that you... By lifting a hand just for a moment of prayer, that you would be able to say, I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to do for me what clearly Paul was seeking to cultivate in the Philippian churches. And that was a, a wondrous sense of mutual respect, a lightheartedness, a value on, on, on these five that are referred to obliquely and many others. And then, of course, as you lift a hand to say, I'm asking the Holy Spirit for grace to enrich the relationships in my life. If you would do that, I'd like to pray for everyone. Lord, we thank you for the, the timely word of God in areas that sometimes we don't expect. And we begin to realize that that prayer in chapter 1, that I pray your love may abound more and more in all knowledge and depth of discernment, can be manifested in our lives in some surprisingly and powerful ways. I ask you to bless every person lifting a hand today, every person with a relationship in their mind or relationships, plural. Bless them, Lord, with a buoying in their heart, a, a, an uplifting, a sense that, yes, I can, by the grace of God, I can see even maybe one that doesn't look like it's a person who's reachable in my life. I'm trusting that person to you, and I'm, I'm asking you to give me grace for enriching relationships for the glory of God.